0: Mark 13, I'm going to continue our series in Mark 13 into a little mini-series, The End of the World as We Know It. You may have seen a video this week about it, not the REM video, uh, but the video from James lying on his hammock. Uh, next two weeks, we're going to be looking at um, kind of Jesus' mini-apocalypse um, here in Mark chapter 13. We're looking at verses 1 through 23 this morning. The verses will be on the screen. You can turn to it in your paper Bible, and you can flip around as we go different texts. So hear now the word of the Lord. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, "'Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings!' And Jesus said to him, "'Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down.' And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, "'Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished?' And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But the Holy Spirit and brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Landon. Well, good morning. My name is James Walden, and I want to especially welcome you uh, to uh, this morning's time together in the Word. If you're at Riverside, um, uh, we're grateful that you're persevering with us uh, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark. And this morning, look at the Olivet Discourse, uh, the teaching, the famous teaching Jesus gives on the Mount of Olives regarding the imminent destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, as well as the end of the world as we know it. And if you're visiting with us this morning, you're checking in on the live stream, we're really glad that you're here. We hope that what what you hear this morning and next week will be not only interesting, but ultimately encouraging for you. And our lesson begins with the disciples coming out of the temple, praising the edifice of the temple. Um, and we should note that this is not the slack-jawed awe of of country bumpkins entering the city for the first time. Uh, this. Temple of Herod was impressive by any standard in the ancient world, as well as the modern. These stones they were gawking at uh, were upwards of 100 tons or more. Uh, They were uh, elaborately decorated uh, white uh, uh, limestone and marble, some of them laden with gold, uh, stacked as high as 20 stories, uh, composing not just the temple courts, but colonnades and porticos and gates and towers and citadels. I and mean, it was a small city in itself that could accommodate upwards of, of multiple hundreds of thousands of people. It was impressive, and the disciples are duly impressed by this, but Jesus is not so impressed. Do you see these great buildings? I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on top of another. You know, I wanna address here, take a moment to address our children specifically. So if you have kids at home, Uh, uh, Children, I want to talk to you if you want to get close to the TV, not too close to the screen. uh, I want to just address you for a moment because as a kid, it's easy to feel invisible, to feel overlooked in a world that pays attention to the big and the powerful and the important. But I want you to know that even when Jesus' disciples overlook children, and they do, Jesus does not He sees children are important and they're important to him. They're so important to him and his father that God's greatest honor and greatest gift he can give, his kingdom, he says he gives that to kids. You are very important in God's eyes and to give the disciples a sense of scale of importance. Right before our text this morning, there's an important observation Jesus makes while he's still in the temple. On the screen, you'll see the text from, Matthew, from Mark chapter 12, verses 41 and following. But there... Jesus observes all these people at the treasury giving their money. And a lot of wealthy people are giving stacks of $100 bills and checks for tens of thousands of dollars. It's very impressive, but Jesus is not impressed. Until a little old lady, a little widow, who has nothing but two copper coins, which amounts to one penny, gives it in the offering, and Jesus is blown away. He says, this woman has given the most important gift. The rest gave out of their riches, She gave out of her poverty all that she had. This is very important. I want you to know, guys, as kids, as little and feeling like there's little that you can contribute, who you are is important to God. And what you can do is important to God and important to God's people. Even when the rest of the world maybe overlooks it. And the reverse is often true too. Those, those things that seem powerful and impressive to the world are often the least impressive to God. Right before the story of the widow, Jesus talks about the religious leaders in his day who wore these richly ornate robes with scripture on them and prayer shawls. And they made it clear they were very religious men who would very quickly steal that penny from that widow, uh, but were nevertheless very religious that wherever they went, they received honor. They were always called reverend and father wherever they went. And when they would go to a restaurant, everyone would clear for them to have the best table, the best seat. People would buy them meals. When they went to church, they sat on the front row. They sat on the thrones, on the stage. They had the most important seats. They were so important. And yet, to God, they just looked silly. So likewise, kids, it doesn't matter. Uh, How impressive uh, you are to others God looks at you so you don't need to be to seem more religious or or be smarter or or be uh, better behaved as a good really good little girl or a really good little boy before God loves you before God sees you as important he already sees you as important because people all people are important to Jesus a building not as much The temple in Jerusalem had all the impressive things that the world pays attention to. It was big, it was shiny, it was covered in gold. It shimmered with white marble. In fact, it was described as a giant snow-capped mountain as people came toward Jerusalem, just shimmering in the sunlight. It was powerful and filled with powerful people, with the religious leaders and teachers and priests. But Jesus wasn't impressed. He was sad. On the screen you'll see a picture of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives where Jesus was teaching his disciples. It was from the Mount of Olives that Jesus first enters Jerusalem with all the people singing, Hosanna, praise to God in the highest. And they're all celebrating. But you know what the Gospel of Luke tells us? As Jesus is looking at the temple, and there on the picture you'll see not the temple, it's no longer there as Jesus predicted but instead a mosque, the Dome of the Rock, where Muslims pray. But Jesus would have seen the whole temple precincts, and it would have been majestic walking there. And Jesus wept. He wept as he approached Jerusalem. He was sad for his people because he says, I I would have longed to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you wouldn't have it. See, Jerusalem, your house is left to you desolate. The temple wasn't so important as the people were. The people are important to God and to Jesus. And Jesus himself was often overlooked. He was seen as unimportant by the powerful people in Jerusalem, as weak and little and of little import. He was the stone that the builders rejected who ended up being the most important person. Even though he looked small and like a nobody and overlooked, he was the chief cornerstone of God's whole house. And I want you to know, as kids, you are important stones in God's house. You're part of God's building and you are important because you are connected to that cornerstone, to Jesus. He was David's kid, David's child. Also, David's Lord, the most important stone. And he thinks you're important. And so I want to pray this morning that we would know Jesus. We would know our importance in him. We would know his importance to us, and that he would show us his love. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you are a God who often even laughs at the, the important things of the world, but holds the things the world ignores as of great importance you love children. You love to give your kingdom to children. Lord, let us be like little children this morning. As we study your text, let us be curious. Let us, let us seek to understand. Let us listen. Let us, Lord, receive your good gifts to us and know our, how much you love us and know your great importance as the great king. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, the first point here that I want to look at in our text this morning is the question asked by the disciples. Let the reader understand that there are multiple questions going on here. In verse three, as Jesus sits down at the Mount of Olives off, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew approach him privately. They wanna know more about this. This was big words Jesus said. I'll tell you the truth, not one stone will be left on top of Herod's temple. And so they ask two questions. When will these things be, the destruction of the temple, and what will be the sign, Uh, that these things are about to be accomplished or about to be finished, all things about to be finished. They're asking whether they know it or not two different questions. They may have conflated them in their mind, but they ask two different questions, the destruction of the temple and the end of all things. Matthew's gospel, when he gives the account of the Olivet Discourse, makes this explicit. Matthew teases out their question with these words. Tell us... This should be on the screen. When will these things be? First question. Same question that they're asked here in Mark. And two, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Again, they likely thought these things went together. But they're asking two different questions. And Jesus answers both of them. Now, Jesus first begins by warning them that not all signs and catastrophes are signs of the end. Not every crisis is the end of the world as we know it. And so the, 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 kind of the third point I want to look at here is the reader needs to understand and remain calm. Look at verse 5 of Mark 13. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. And then he describes these great catastrophes. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Earthquakes, famines. But these are just the beginning of the birth pangs, not the end. Or I like how Luke puts it in his account of the Olivet Discourse. On your screen is from Luke 21. But there, Luke writes, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. Don't be afraid. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. He's saying it's not going to come immediately. And he goes on to describe how nation will rise against nation and kingdom. He goes further in his descriptions of great earthquakes, various famines, and pestilences. That is, diseases. Pandemics will strike the globe. Jesus says the end is not yet. Don't panic. Don't be alarmed. Remain calm. Why? Because if you're a Christian, especially, you have a mission to to play in this And it is not to run to the hills and to become a prepper and panic. That's not what Jesus calls us to. Look at what he calls us to in verse 9. Be on your guard. Be on your guard. Be ready during crisis. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel, gospel must first be preached to all nations. Matthew puts it most famously, this is the impetus for many global missions in the modern church, Uh, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. It's a global work as a testimony to all nations, all Gentiles, then the end will come. So Jesus is saying there's a long time between my speaking to you and the events of the temple's destruction and the end of the world as we know it. It's going to be a long time. The whole Gentile mission must be fulfilled. And so, as Mark goes on to say in verse 11, when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand as to what you are to say. Or again, I like how Luke puts it on Luke 21. Luke says, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds in advance. Don't meditate what you're going to say. Meditate on that you're going to say it. And I think for us, during this time where the Christian church has given such a poor witness in crises of the past, of becoming panickers who run to the hills, who, who, who become hoarders in the last days. It's the very opposite of what Jesus calls us to do, which is to not run away, but to remain, and to remain faithful. If you're going to hoard grain and water, great as long as you're sharing it with your neighbors, right? The whole point of this crisis is for us to bear witness to Jesus, not run for the hills. That time's not yet. Jesus, will talk about that in a moment, but it's a time to remain faithful. Instead of panicking preppers, we need to be persevering preachers. And so let me address, uh, Christians, you for a moment. During this pandemic, are you quite prepared to bear witness? Have you settled in your mind not to be anxious, but to be eager and ready to fulfill your role as a witness to Jesus? How are you doing that? How are you preparing in your mind, settling it? All right, this is it. This is my time to bear witness to Jesus in a time of crisis and of uncertainty, to give uh, a reason for the hope that's within me. Are we quite prepared to do that? Are we settled in our own minds? that This is what this time is for, for us to remain, and to remain faithful witnesses to our neighbors. How are we doing that and how can we pray for God to bless our efforts in this time? But the fourth point here, and perhaps the most substantial, is let the reader understand Jesus' reference to Daniel. Take a look at verse 14. But, so this is, all, this is not the end, it's the beginning of the earth, the, 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 the birth pangs. Don't freak out, don't panic, but, is verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to stand, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Then you can run to the hills. If you're in Judea, that doesn't apply to any of us probably, but if you're in Judea, then you can run for the hills and uh, and hide out in the mountains. But it, G, uh, Mark's editorial comment there is very important. Let the reader understand. What is he saying there? He's saying, guys, this isn't going to be obvious on the surface. You actually need to, to dig here. You need to think and reflect. And so put your thinking caps on a little bit. We're going to dig. We're going to dig particularly into this phrase Mark uses, the abomination of desolation. Uh, Matthew gives us an even bigger hint. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel. So now we know where to look. And indeed, the phrase abomination that makes desolate or the abomination of the desolator or abomination of desolation occurs four times in the prophecy of Daniel in 8.13, 9.27, 11.31, and 12.11. We're going to consider a few of them this morning. We'll start with the first reference in chapters 8 and 9. And I just want to read verses 24 through 27 um, as the angel Gabriel gives answer to Daniel's prayer. Daniel is in exile in Babylon and he's asking, how long, O Lord, until you restore Israel? And this is the answer he gets from Gabriel. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, That sounds pretty absolute. To atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one or the coming of Messiah, a prince, there will be seven weeks. Now weeks here in Daniel references a pattern of seven. Here he's speaking of seven weeks. Years, So there will be seven sevens of years, or 49 years, and 62 sevens of years, that is 434 years. He goes on, Jerusalem's will be rebuilt with squares and a moat, but in troubled times. This describes the rebuilding in Ezra and Nehemiah. But after the 62 weeks, so after that initial seven weeks of building and then, then 62 weeks which is 49 plus 434, if you're doing math, that's 483 years, he says. After those 62 weeks, an anointed one, Messiah, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Now, just a note here. Assuming that the decree that goes out to rebuild Jerusalem that Gabriel mentions here is the decree mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 1, then that was around the year 450 B.C., So if you just add to 450 the 483 years, that takes us to the year 30 to 33 BC, about the time Christ was crucified. That's an amazingly accurate prophecy. But it goes on. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It's end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Sounds a lot like what Jesus just said, doesn't it? There will be wars and rumors of wars, all kinds of panic. But the end is not yet. But he goes on to say this. And he, this prince who is to come, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. This is the last week, the 70th week. And for half of the week, so for three and a half years, he will put an end to sacrifice and offerings. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So that's the, the first major reference in Daniel to this abomination of desolation that Mark says, make sure you understand this. The next reference is in Daniel 11, verse 31. But there, Daniel seems to be discussing a different abomination with a different leader, this time uh, a Greek conqueror. And it says this in Daniel 11.31, His armies will set up an abomination that makes desolate. He'll seduce many with flattery to break the covenant, but the wise will stand firm. Some will stumble, but they'll be refined, purified, made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits its appointed time. In other words, Daniel's saying there's another abomination of a desolation coming, but it's not at the appointed end. It's like in the middle of history. And the Jews and Christians for thousands of years have understood that Daniel 11.31 was fulfilled by one Greek conqueror by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes in the year 167 BC. He marched into the temple, took down all the temple furnishings, set up a altar to Zeus and slaughtered a pig on it. You can imagine how that went over. It, it fomented a, a revolt. But that was seen as the abomination of desolation of this Greek conqueror predicted by Daniel. But Jesus says here, insofar as he's answering their first question, when will the temple be destroyed, seems to be pointing back to Daniel and speaks of another desolation, one after Messiah is cut off in Israel. The people, of the prince who is to come, it says in verse 26 of chapter 9, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So Mark's telling us here that there is another instance of abomination of desolation coming against the temple, much more devastating than that experienced under Antiochus Epiphanes 200 years before, a coming desolation by the Roman Empire. And Luke makes that historical answer explicit In his account of the Olivet Discourse, Luke interestingly does not talk about the abomination of desolation like Mark and Matthew does. Look what Luke says instead on the screen. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, he says, Then you know the desolation has come near. That goes on, they, the Jews, will fall by the edge of the sword, they'll be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus earlier predicts this in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 19, he says, the days will come when your enemies will set up barricades, they'll surround you, hem you in, tear you down to the ground, you and your children, they will not leave one stone on another, And indeed, that is exactly, sadly, grievously what happens in AD 70. Roman armies led by General Titus approach the temple grounds, and they break through the wall, and they torch. It becomes a giant furnace. People are burned alive by the tens of thousands. It is a slaughter. It's awful. It's one of the greatest sufferings the Jewish people have endured in history. And the temple is razed. One observer said the only thing left standing in all of Jerusalem was a little hut that served as a Roman military campaign center. Utterly devastated. And Jewish Christians, we know from ancient sources, when they saw Rome marching around Jerusalem, they fled, just like Jesus said. They fled to a little town called Pella in the foothills. And they survived as a result. There was a time to run for the hills. That was it. But there's a third reference in Daniel to an abomination of desolation that seems to come at the end of history, not in the middle. And Jesus seems to be contemplating that abomination simultaneously as he's answering both their questions. When will the temple be destroyed and when will the end come? He answers it with one question, or one answer, the abomination of desolation in both senses. What is this latter-day sense, this end-of-time sense? Daniel's final mention of this abomination of desolation event occurs at the end of the book in chapter 12, where Daniel describes the end of the world as we know it. And listen to what he says. He says, there will be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But Israel will be saved, And then the dead will be raised from the grave, the righteous to everlasting life, the wicked to everlasting shame and contempt, he says. But this description of an unprecedented horror is exactly the language Mark uses as he describes the abomination of desolation in Judea. Look at chapter 13, verse 15. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. You can't be a prepper. You just gotta go. Like, you got nothing in your hands. Just run. And let the one who's in the field not turn back and take his cloak. Just run. If you're in your skivvies, just go. You know, like, there's no time to prepare. For in those days there will be such tribulation, Mark writes, as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. I mean, so Mark here's describing not just a really bad time in Israel's history, he's something like the worst that there ever has been, and he uses language that makes clear he's not exaggerating. This is apocalyptic pain. The worst than the creation of the world. Never again to be repeated. When Daniel asks, how long, O Lord, for this suffering? The answer is a time, a time, a times, and a half a time. Can I give a half finger? That's three and a half. That's Midweek, right? A week cut in half is three and a half days or three and a half years, uh, and that then would all things be completed or accomplished, and then it closes. Mark twelve closes with this with this verse: From the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there will be one thousand two hundred and ninety days. That adds up to three and a half years. The week cut in half. It's exactly what Daniel 9, 27 describes. The prince who is to come will put an end to the sacrificial offerings midweek at three and a half days. Maybe this is what Jesus is referencing when he says if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. That the week was cut in half, I don't know for sure. But I know this, Mark attaches these events of the abominable desolation. abominable not, ex- not just to AD 70, but to the events that precede immediately his return. Look what he says in verse 24. But in those days after that tribulation, in those days that were cut short because the suffering was so great, Jesus says, then the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will fall from heaven, powers will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming. Matthew makes this even more explicit in case we were in any doubt. Matthew 24 says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and and the Son of Man will appear in the skies. Immediately. And in Greek, the word immediately means immediately. Like there's no way you can make that mean like 2,000 years later. So clearly Mark and Matthew are speaking out of both events, the coming destruction in AD 70 under Titus and a yet future abomination of desolation. That will be immediately uh, 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 answered by the return of Christ. Did you remember what Luke said about his version of this? He says, when you see Judea or Jerusalem surrounded by armies, he says they'll fall by the edge, they'll be taken to exile. Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Luke, unlike Matthew and Mark, puts a giant time stamp between this event, this abomination, whatever it is precisely, and until the Gentile season is fulfilled, until the mission to the Gentiles is finished. But Matthew and Mark tie them closely together. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says. This is such a striking resonance in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This should appear on your screen. Paul's having to deal with end of times panic because the world there was famines there was pestilences everyone's panicking like they are today and Jesus and Paul says this now concerning the coming of our lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him i we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed sounds just like what jesus said right either by a spirit spoken word or a letter that claims to be from us to the effect, of the day of the Lord has come. let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. What is that? Well, he goes on. Don't you remember when I was still with you? I told you these things, how I wish I was there. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. I don't know what's restraining him now. I don't know who he is. Uh, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There's already many antichrists in the world. Only he who now restrains it, who's that? Is that Michael? I don't know. Will do so until he is out of the way. Then the lawless one, Christians have interpreted this for 2,000 years as the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Do you see what Paul's doing? He says, some event will take place of this man of lawlessness, this Antichrist who makes his appearance in the temple of God, an abomination of desolation, and that Christ's appearance will follow immediately after this and he will be destroyed. Whatever happened in A.D. 70, whatever signs were in heaven and there were claims of this, whatever atrocities took place and they were beyond telling. I know this, Jesus did not appear and slay Titus or anyone with the breath of his mouth, which tells us there's a yet future abomination that Matthew and Mark are pointing us toward. What this means, guys, is we don't need to be naive. When hard things come, we can say with Jesus, the end is not yet. As far as I know, the man of lawlessness has not been revealed. As far as I know, he's not taken a seat in the temple of God, whatever that means exactly. Paul seems to say, you don't need to panic. You shouldn't be shocked or alarmed until you see that. But I want to address everyone. Here I'm speaking to Christians, but I want to address everyone. And the final words is, let the reader understand and believe in Jesus. In times of crisis, we are desperate for a savior. We're desperate for someone to come rescue us. Whether there's are the scientific experts or government officials to tell us what to do and how to behave, we need to know because we don't know. And what's become apparent in this pandemic is nobody knows. We don't know what we're doing. We don't know how to respond to this pandemic. We have very little control. We have very little understanding. And so we we race looking for messiahs, looking for experts, looking for gurus to give us direction. And let me encourage you in this time to look to Jesus. He has been faithful in his predictions of history up to this point. And more than just his expertise, he's more than just a know-it-all. Jesus is a savior. And he wants to offer you in your anxiety, your fear, whether you're anxious about your health, you're anxious about your financial status or the future of the economy, he wants to offer you his peace. And I can stand as a witness. I have known Jesus' power and presence in my life. I have known freedom from anxiety that's come from his blessing, his power in my life. He is a kind, gracious, meek savior who gives rest to weary souls. And because you are important in his His eyes, he offers this rest to you. Would you receive it? Would you receive salvation from the one true savior? Let me pray for us, and would you pray along with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that warns us and instructs us in advance so that we know before the day comes how to behave, how to to conduct ourselves. Would help us as the church to give good witness that we would not be panickers, preppers. We would not flee from hardship that we would be faithfully present in it, bearing witness to Jesus, sharing our goods with our neighbors and sharing most important good that's been entrusted to us of all to them, the gospel of Jesus. And for those of us that are scared, Lord, we're anxious, we're overwhelmed. Lord, we confess that we are and we bring it to you as the one who invites us to take our anxiety, to take our fears, not in judgment, but out of love and compassion, Lord, you look upon us. And you say, come, bring to me your sorrows. Let me carry them. I love you. Lord, we receive your love now. And we rest our weary souls in your strong and caring arms. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.